How's everybody doing today? Good? I don't know. I might start by sitting and then I might stand up later. Is that okay with everybody? No? All right. Well, I don't really care. I'm going to sit anyway. I'm sitting down on the job, everybody. Um, hey, we are starting a new series. Um, and in like true J-Road fashion, I decided it like last week, you know, and we didn't unveil awesome graphics yet or a cool announcement yet. We'll probably do that this coming week, but this week will be introductory to the new book we're studying, which will be the book of Romans, all right? So I am really pumped to look into the book of Romans because it's an awesome book. Um, it's a book that has started many great movements. Many great revivals have come from studying the book of Romans. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, anybody here ever hear the name Martin Luther? Raise your hand. All right, if you're a Christian, we should know Martin Luther. If you don't, uh, Google him and look him up on Wikipedia. But Mar Martin Luther started what is called the Protestant Reformation. And it's basically when the Protestant church, or what became known as the Evangelical Church now, broke off of the Catholic Church. And he was, you know, in the Catholic Church, and he broke off, and he started that movement. But a year before Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, if, if the really good details is, he wrote something called the 95th Thesis, and he nailed it to the, to the door of the church to break off. And he said, this is what the church isn't teaching right, and he kind of nailed it on, and then that's what started the, you know, the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I say that because a year before he wrote that, he was um, in the church and he studied the book of Romans for a solid year. He meditated on it. He wrote about it. He studied it and just learned what the book of Romans had to say and what Paul was trying to say. And that's what started this whole movement. And it's a very special work. And uh, he said this. He said this, and, and Martin Luther's quoted as saying this. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. He said it is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. And he's saying it's such a good letter to meditate on, read, study. And so, you know, through prayer and a lot of time, because I've been spending a lot of, since we finished up the book of James, to knowing what book to go into. And there's a lot of short books I could have done, Maybe the book of Jude, maybe like, uh, you know, Philippians or something that's a shorter book. But Romans is not a short book. And so with that, we will be in Romans the better part of 2020. And we'll study it, you know, verse by verse like we normally do. Um, it's called expository preaching. And so we might take a break during the summer and start back up in September. But we are going to be working our way through the whole book of Romans. So if you're looking for something to do in your quiet times, you know, check it out. Read ahead, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, and today we're going to cover verses like 1 through 17 of chapter 1, and as we introduce what it's all about, who it's written to, and all that good stuff. And you guys should know who the book of Romans is written to, right? Who's the book of Romans written to? Yes. Very good. The book of Philippians is written to the church, where? Philippi. Very good. Galatians, Galatia and so on and so forth. But the, the audience is Rome. And so, um, so this book is good at starting a movement, and it's good at relieving a lot of fears that Christians have. A lot of fears. 
And what do I mean by that? I talk to a lot of Christians, a lot of believers, and I think sometimes we doubt our salvation at times. As Brian talked about doubt last week, I think doubting our salvation is something that some of us struggle with. Um, not feeling like we measure up. Um, not being sure that God's grace can cover all the bad stuff I've done. Um, and maybe not feeling like we're as good as some other Christians. Um, there's a lot of other things Romans hits on that, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so let's start with who wrote the book of Romans. Uh, if you know it, say it on the count of three. One, two, three. All right, very good. Not very good on enthusiasm, but very accurate in your answer, all right? Paul wrote the book of Romans. Um, let's start by reading Romans verses 1 through 6, okay? And I'm in the ESV, if you have your Bibles. Um, if you could change it on your iPad, you could do that. Otherwise, it'll be similar in other versions. But it says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay? That's kind of a long introduction to this piece, but it's important, and, and he, it's so deep. The book of Romans, like, the reason if we stay on it right now, the reason we're going to go until probably November is because I don't want to rush through the whole book. I don't want to rush through and skip over passages. Like, we're going to literally read every verse in this. But we're going to dissect it, talk about it, because it's so rich and so thick. It's like a big pot of chili. I just thought of that just now. It's like, you know, a big pot of chili isn't just water, meat, and tomatoes, right? Like, if you do it right, there's some garlic in there, right? Lindsay, some garlic up in there? There's some undercooked onions up in there to make the onions all crunchy and good. There's some good stuff in there. But if you taste the chili and just say, ooh, that's, that's good soup, it's like you might miss some of this stuff, all right? So we're going to break down the chili, and we're going to talk about it. Because there's some nuggets in there that could change your life, Amen. Like, Scripture can change your life, and that's kind of what Paul talks about here, is like, he said, I come to preach the gospel because the gospel is, the, what he says is the power of God. It says the power of God, and so it's very important. So that's why. But, so, let's talk about Paul for a minute. I might transition to sitting, or standing. I don't want to sit on the job the whole day, all right? But, so, um, so Paul, who here remembers what Paul, Paul's name was when he, we were first introduced to him in the New Testament? Saul. Yes, very good. Um, his name was Saul. And uh, he was a very interesting guy, but after his conversion, he went on to write 13 books of the New Testament called the Pauline Epistles. Um, but Saul was not one of the 12 disciples, okay? He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He actually, his name, you know, his name was Saul, and he didn't become a Christian until after Jesus had already descended into heaven. Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, defeating death, and then he went to heaven, and then Saul was doing his work, and then Jesus came down on the road to where? On the road to Damascus, and appeared to Saul, 
and then converted him. But, but Saul, before he was turned to Paul, before he was saved, he was a Jewish rabbi, okay? A Jewish rabbi, but he was not just any rabbi. He was a Pharisee, okay? Now, if you remember Pharisees, if you read the Gospels, Jesus was always fighting with the Pharisees because they preached legalism. They preached um, doing good works appeals to God, and they also followed the law, which was good, you know, for them, and, and they had the law. And they followed the law, but they also added to the law. And Pharisees added to the law, okay? But Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, but they were like a step above everybody else. Like to be a Pharisee, you had to go through so much training. It's believed that Paul probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. He had the whole law memorized because he had to. Um, and he says in other places in the New Testament that he was the Pharisees of Pharisees. He knew the law, he followed the law to a T, and he was the best of the best. According to Acts 22, he was trained under a guy named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is kind of like Mr. Miyagi, all right? You didn't choose Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi chose you, all right? And so Gamaliel is also spoke of in other parts of the New Testament. But he was like the highest teacher. And to be trained under him, you'd been under him for like five years plus with him all the time, learning every in and out of what it means to be a Jew, what it means to follow the law. And so Paul was one of the brightest Pharisees there were. As I said, uh, he had the Bible memorized. He was zealous for God. He loved God so much. That's what we forget is the Pharisees loved God so much, they were zealous for him. They were zealous for him. And they would do whatever they could. And that's why when Jesus came and the way started, and the way is the group of Christians that started to believe Jesus was the Messiah and they believe he rose again. When the way happened, all the Jews from the church, a lot of them went with the Christian faith. They started to become believers of the way or believers in Jesus. And so a lot of the Jews left the Jewish faith. And they said, we're going to follow Jesus and go after him, and we believe he's the Messiah, and he fulfilled the law. And that made Saul and the other Pharisees so angry that they committed the rest of their life to hunting down Christians, arresting them, and sometimes killing them, as we read about in Acts, how they stoned Stephen. And so he committed his life to chasing down and killing Christians. That's what Saul was. He was like the enemy of all Christians, and going after them and arresting them and sending them in prison. And that's kind of why Romans is so cool, because it emphasizes this, is grace through faith. Like we receive God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important. It's by grace, not by works. And Paul, of all people, knew works, right? That's all he did was works. You follow the law, you're right with God. And then in Romans, he said, it's not following the law that makes you righteous. It's only through faith in Jesus that makes you righteous, okay? And so he teaches that, and that's why it's so cool. He's saying doing good doesn't make you good. And for Saul, that's a big thing to say because he committed his whole life to following the law and doing good. And he's saying that doesn't matter. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And then that makes you do good things out of that, but doing good things does not get you saved and all that, you know, paradox. So... Saul, we read about he oversaw the killing of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, Stephen talking about an axe. So in a way, he was a murderer because he oversaw this and he approved 
of the stoning of Stephen. And all Stephen did was preach the gospel. All Stephen did was preach the gospel and Saul had him killed. And everybody went to Saul for approval for that and he gave it. And that's another reason why Romans is so cool. Because, in a sense, if Paul, a murderer, can receive the grace of God, why can't you? Why, can't, why, why do some of us have such a hard time receiving the grace of God when Paul, who was a murderer and tried his best to stop the Christian faith and had some Christians killed, if he could receive it and then preach on it, why do we have such a hard time receiving this free, amazing grace and living out of the guilt-free life of amazing grace? Why do we have a hard time believing that? Why do we have a hard time living through that? And so that's why it is good is, is that we kind of meditate on the fact that Saul, even though he was a Pharisee, he did everything he could to try to stop Christianity. He did everything he could to try to stop it. If there's any of you um, that are feeling guilty, read Romans, written by a murderer. Is there any of you that don't feel like God accepts you? Read Romans, God accepted him. Is there anything that you can't come back from? And in Romans we say no. God is the God of grace and while you're still here on earth, you can receive his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We have that freedom that we can live through that freedom. And kind of the goal of this book is we read it and study it and a weight should be lifted off our shoulders as Christians, and we can live through freedom and not through guilt. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that something that we should be able to, like, go out and share the gospel from a place of security, that knowing that our faith is sealed, our, our righteousness, and faith has made us righteousness? Um, but Paul got saved on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him, and a light came down on the road, and Paul became temporarily blind. And Jesus, and he, he accepted Jesus, and then he got baptized shortly after. But why did God come to Saul? We don't really know that, but we know this. Sometimes God has a movement for good, and Satan can steal it and use it for evil. Many times we see that with people, with movements. We see that God is using this for good, and then sometimes Satan takes it and uses it for evil. We see that maybe with pastors who fall and commit heinous crimes or acts, and we're like, what happened? Satan stole that, and what was used for good, Satan now used for evil. And it happens all the time, and God's grace can still cover that. But what I'm also saying is, what Satan is uses for evil, God can take and flip it and use it for good. What you think is so evil and so bad, God can take it, turn it around, and use it the best thing for the kingdom. That's what God does. He takes people, changes them, makes them good. He takes circumstances, changes it, make it for good. So if every time, any time that we worry about our lives and worrying that we can't come back for this, that person can't come back for this, we need to know that God flips bad things and turns them for good. Amen? We can't lose hope for that, for any person or anything. And so Paul was used by Satan to squish out, if I could say that, squish out, like the Christian faith. If Paul could, if Satan could use Saul to do that, and God takes him and says, no, I'm going to use you to advance the kingdom in what was once. And that's why so many of the Christians were afraid of Paul. They didn't want to be around him because they just knew him as this enemy of the church. But what Satan plans for evil, God can use for good. The church's biggest enemy transformed to the church's biggest hero. How can that happen? Only God. 
only God. And as you guys are here and you're facing circumstances or you guys go to your prayer journals and you, have prayer, you better have prayer requests on there that are things that you could say only God can do this. If you don't, then your prayers are probably too small and they could use a faith boost because we should add prayers to our prayer list that make us say the only way this is going to happen is if God does a miracle. The only way this is going to happen. And then put that before God's feet and keep praying that. So it's an only God moment. Um, but so he can flip it. So, okay, we talked about the author. It's Paul. But now we want to go on to the audience. We know it's Rome. And he's writing the church in Rome. But we're going to talk a little bit more about this. So look at verse 7. If you have your Bibles open or you can look on the screens. Verse 7 through 15. He says, and this is his audience, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at, le at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So, if we're going to look at the next slide is verse 7. We'll go back to verse 7. To all those who in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So the first thing we need to realize is Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome. This isn't a letter to like the un, you know, the faithless government, or it's not a letter to just the general people of Rome. This is a letter to the church in Rome. And so we have the mindset that he's writing to Christians, okay? He's writing to Christians. Just like you and me, that's who he's writing to. And that becomes apparent and important in a little bit. But um, he's writing to Christians in Rome. And the other thing is Paul has never been to Rome at this point. He, he's only um, heard about it, another pastor or another apostle started the church. It wasn't Paul. He hasn't been there yet, but he's writing to them. So he's writing to the Christians. Why is that important? Because look at the next uh, slide. I have verse 15. Paul says this to the Christians, and this is kind of important. He said, to you Christians, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And we talk about this oftentimes at JRO, but it's very important. It's, it's knowing and learning the gospel as us Christians. So oftentimes when we think about the gospel, we think of the gospel as like the diving board into the Christian faith. Okay? So if I say I'm preaching the gospel, you think I'm out converting people. But that could be true. But the point is, is that the gospel is for Christians as much as it is the non-Christians. The gospel isn't just the diving board into the Christian faith. The gospel is the pool that we live in, that we soak in. And that's why it's so important that we have a full understanding of the gospel. Because according to Romans, according to the Bible, 
The gospel is good for changing your life, not just saving you. So we're saved by the gospel, but we also live from the gospel as well. The gospel isn't just the diving board, it's the whole pool, okay? We use the gospel daily. You should be thinking about the gospel daily and what it brings us as Christians every day. Remind ourselves of the cross and how it changes us, how it affects us, how we are free in Christ. All this stuff is very important, and as Paul says, the gospel is the power of God. And so the gospel for each one of us is important. It's not just for non-believers, it's for all of us. So that is uh, interesting that Paul says that. He's writing to Christians, but he wants to come there to preach the gospel to them. And that's what we do here. We need to know the gospel, what it means, what it, what it is, and how to share it with other people. We'll probably be talking about that. Because anybody ever, here ever hear of the Romans Road to salvation? Anybody ever hear of Romans Road? Okay, we will talk about it um, over the next, you know, few months or something. But the Romans Road is a way to share your salvation using verses in Romans, okay? And so if you sit down with somebody, you open your Bible, and you take them verse by verse of how to be saved. But this is one thing I want everybody at J-Road to know is to know the gospel, but also be able to articulate it. If anybody, that's what we're going to do in partnership class when we have our next partnership class, is we should be able to articulate the gospel and share what it means. Very simple, okay? And, and we'll get into that more and more. But I'll just share it now because I think there's some of us that might be confused. The gospel says this in a nutshell. The gospel says that we are all born sinners, we are all born evil, and without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we're going to spend eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. And we are not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because we go to church or we give money to the poor. But we are only saved because Jesus Christ, God's only son, came to earth, lived a sinless life, and went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and your sin. And because of the shed blood, that covers all of our sin. And when he died, and all the disciples were sad because he died, he only stayed dead for three days, and then he, God raised him from the dead, defeating death. So that when you die, you don't actually die, you just go to a place the Bible calls heaven, and, you know, you experience salvation, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel comes is you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's how I share people is you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior if you want to experience eternal life that Jesus offers. That's the gospel in a nutshell. There's a way to probably simplify that a little bit, but those are the nuts and bolts. But I ask people, I say, what's the gospel? They say, I don't know. That's the gospel. We are all helpless, and so God helped us. And the gospel just doesn't save everybody. We have a responsibility to cry out to God and say, forgive me for all of my sins. Come into my heart and save me. That's our responsibility. And so, to move on, the audience in Rome was a divided church. So why is it a divided church? Paul talks about unity and division in the church, and so we'll talk about that. Um, but I'm going to get to a little bit of history real quick. But in 49 AD, and I'm sure most of you are like me and not history buffs, but in Rome, in 49 AD, there is an emperor and his name was Claudius. Okay, Claudius. And he did this thing called the Claudius Edict where he wanted all the Jews to get out of Rome. So all the Jews had to pack up and leave Rome. And that's where we talk about in James the dispersion is because... At that time, he said, if you're a Jew, you have to leave. 
You have to leave. So they packed up and left. But get this. Remember we talked about Gentiles and Jews? There's Jewish people who grew up learning the Old Testament and the Jewish law. But there's Gentiles who were not Jewish. They were heathens. They were just, they didn't, they maybe worshipped a foreign god. They didn't know the god of the Old Testament, the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't follow the law. They, did, they probably ate bacon. They did all that stuff they weren't supposed to do. They were considered Gentiles. Okay? Gentiles is non-Jews. And then you had the Jews over here. This is what happened. Both the Jews and the Gentiles got saved. And they came up with the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Well, that created problems, right? Because the Jews told the Gentiles, you have to live a certain way if you want to be saved. You know what? I don't care how old you are, y'all got to go and get circumcised. All right? And the Gentiles were like, oh, heck no, we're not doing that. Um, they said, you know what? You can't do this. You have to follow the law. And you have to live your life according to the Jewish faith. And, you and they basically said, you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian, right? And so a lot of the New Testament deals with this Jews and Gentiles conflict because they're like, I don't have to become a Jew. They said, all I have to do is put my faith in Jesus Christ and I can be saved. And they said, yeah, but you got to become a Jew first and follow all our laws. And there was this constant struggle. And Romans is a lot about that. Um, and this is why it's important because we go back to Claudius. He told all the Jews to leave. So... The Jews were the first to get saved. They started the church in Rome. And then they started to save Gentiles. The Gentiles came into the Christian church. And the Jews were saying, hey, you got to do this, this, and this. And there was fighting. Well, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And guess what? The Gentiles had the church all to themselves. No more, like all the Christian Jews and all the other Jews had to leave. So the Gentiles were like, hey, man, we got the church to ourselves. This is great. And they were like, they, they didn't get kicked out. So the church, the house churches kept meeting, kept enjoying life. No more fighting, no more arguing. For five years, Rome was Jews free. And the Gentiles were like living life. You know what I mean? And then about a, a year or two before Romans, the book of Romans was written, the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. And so they all packed up their bags and they started moving back into Rome. Well, guess what? Do you think that caused problems in the church? All the Gentile Christians were loving life. They weren't arguing. They weren't fighting. Nobody is saying nobody had to be circumcised. But then the Jews came back. And they walk in the church and they, you know, they acted like the sheriff's back in town. And they say, listen up. We're in charge now. And the Gentiles were like, no, you're not. And they're like, yeah, we are. You know, Jesus was a Jew, so we're Jews, so we're, we're, like, we're in charge now. And they said, for five years we did really good without y'all. We don't care that you're back. And so there is this fighting back and forth. And that makes Rome, uh, the book of Romans, come alive a little bit. Look at Acts 18.2. I put this in here as well because it talks about this Claudius um, thing. So we read about it in the history books, but we also read it in the book of Acts 18.2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because, why did he come from Italy? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And so all these Jews were going to different parts of the world, but they weren't allowed in Rome at that time because Claudius had, you know, told them all to leave. So the church in Rome became a new mix of 
Christians and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Um, and they started to fight. So they had to get along. And they had to create unity. And it's very important. So I, um, Jewish Christians would have been placed in an awkward situation of having to assimilate into the groups that felt rather foreign to them. This is the reverse of what had happened before the Claudius Edict. At that time, Gentiles would have had to adapt to the Jewish customs to fit in. Surely, when the Jewish Christians showed up again in a now mostly Gentile churches, tensions would have emerged over who was in charge and how Christians were supposed to relate to all things Jewish. And so there was arguing and fighting a little bit. He said, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the Jewish law, and after all, Jesus was a Jew, you need to not eat certain foods, and, um, and all this stuff. The church lived in this tension, and they had to get along. Now, I say this because this is kind of the important part. The church had to live in this tension to get along, right? Um, it would be like this. Imagine if Emmanuel Lutheran decided to come to J-Road, right? Like they decided to come to J-Road, like Emmanuel Lutheran used to be here. But let's say they had 50 folks and they wanted to come in J-Road. And they came in here and the first thing that would happen is there'd probably be a little bit of this. Hey, we light candles at the start of our service. J-Road doesn't. Hey, our pastor wears a, you know, a, a, you know, a thing. And, and Jim basically looks like he just rolled out of bed. Um, and there would be this fighting. And the way the church usually handles fighting is we just go our own ways. Hey, Tom, I don't like you. You said something mean to me. I'm going over to this church. You stay here. I'm out. And Jesus doesn't like that in the church. He likes unity. And unity requires conflict. And conflict isn't bad. Right? And so the, the church in Rome didn't have a choice. They didn't have a church on every corner. They were still being persecuted. So they had a few house churches that they had to meet. They had to get along. They had to get along. And my fear is, is that the church in America is, if I don't like the color of the drapes, I don't like the pastor's message, I'm going to go to that church down the road. And then we never resolve our conflicts or we never create unity. We just create divisions by going to different churches. Right? That's why, in a way, having 2,000 different denominations in the Church of America isn't good. I mean, it happened. It is what it is. But I think about this. I want us as a church to start working with the other churches in Muskegon, the other Bible-based Christian churches. we got to do that. We shouldn't fight over sheep. You know what I mean? Hey, you took this couple and you took this couple. It's like that doesn't matter because there's 100,000 people in Muskegon County who don't know Jesus that we can work together on reaching. Amen? And there's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of sex trafficking. There's a lot of things that we could team up on as other churches and not just fight and not just spend money and millions of dollars on bigger buildings. And so that's part of my heart is to partner with other churches and not be afraid of other churches. Not be afraid of, oh, Clinton, you know, Cassie, you're going to see that, that, you know, har Harvest has almond milk, you know, they put in a creamer. And, you know, the coffee they use is Starbucks brand. And, oh, man, they got comfy cheats. And we got these, and like, I, I don't want to get into that. Because the more we get focused on inward things, like the color of the carpet, the less we start focusing on the gospel. Amen? The more we start fighting and arguing and division happens, the less time we spend on expanding the kingdom. That's why I love J-Road, is we don't spend a lot of time fighting. 
Thank God. And I praise God for that. I don't take that for granted. Um, now, and I'm all for people bringing constructive criticism or things they don't like. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I'm saying is, you guys individually, there's going to be times where you don't get along. We have to create unity and try our best to create unity. We have to forgive each other. We have to work together because that's what they did. They had a much harder time and they made it work. They had a much harder time and they made it work. We can make it work as well. We don't just bounce when things get hard. We are a church family. Amen? That's why it's good to become partners because you're committing to the family and I'm committing to you. And we are a church family. Um, we don't just leave. Um, when I get mad at Nicole, I don't leave. All right? I go to my room, pout for a minute, and come out and say I'm sorry. All right? <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't leave our families. We don't leave when things get hard. Marriages don't break up over one fight. We work it out and we, you know, we're a family. And the church is a family and we're all part of God's family. And we need to work together. And that's sort of the beauty of Romans. I want you to think about that. Okay? So the central theme, the central theme is this. The righteousness of God is available to everyone who comes to faith, who comes to Christ through faith. The righteousness of God is available to everyone who comes to Christ through faith. To the Jew, to the Gentile, to the barbarian, to the Greek, to anybody can come to faith in Jesus Christ. They can come to Christ through faith. And not only that, but we need to realize, maybe this gets left out in the church, and maybe that's why we're studying Romans. You can come to faith in Christ and be saved, and you can get your one-way ticket to heaven, and you can be happy that you got your heaven ticket. But there is more God has for us here on earth than just a one-way ticket to heaven. Amen? Y'all don't come to Jesus just for the fire insurance. But we come to Jesus because it's life to the fullest. It's life to the fullest. And we have a mission to spread, spread the good news. And that we can experience the righteousness of God. Meaning that all of God's righteousness is put on you. So when you get to heaven, God doesn't see a no good scoundrel. He sees the righteousness of God. Because all your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that we don't have to live feeling guilty. We don't have to live feel guilty. We're going to screw up. We're going to mess up. We can be honest about that. We've done some bad things. We're probably going to do some bad things in the future. But we can keep coming back to the gospel. We can keep coming back to the gospel for strength. You can be sure you're saved if you have any doubts. You can have joy if you if, if you're, don't have joy. Look forward to eternity. You can have peace in your heart knowing that God is pleased with you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus done. Amen? So that's the central theme. I'm going to read this last verse, 16 and 17, and we'll read verse 18 next week. But 16 and 17 says this. And as I'm reading this, the worship team can probably come up and get forward. I just have a couple more points, S small points. Uh, verse 16, Paul says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of, for, all right. I'm going to start that over because you get an A at it, but a B minus at the enthusiasm. <laughs> All right. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the of, for, the gospel. Thank you guys so much. That coffee finally kicked in. Pay good money for that for y'all to be energetic. It's for, okay, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
That's how we are made righteous is through belief, not through good works. Not through good works. Our good works are going to fall short. But our good works should come out of our faith, not produce our faith. Um, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by All right. The righteous shall live by faith. That is good. I'm going to read this last portion, but my hope is that through this year of studying this gospel, um, we become saturated with it and we learn what this power of God is. Because I believe the power of God not only makes you guys righteous, and so all your sins can be forgiven, you can be made righteous, but I believe the power of God can bring healing. I believe it could uh, help you through life. It could help you have a different outlook on life, give you peace, give you joy, give you strength, give you confidence. It's all the power of God, and we can learn that in the book of Romans. But he says, I'm not, afraid, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he say that? He says it because some people were ashamed of the gospel. I know none of you are ashamed of the gospel, and every one of you preach the gospel without any shame, but there are people out there that are ashamed of the gospel and Paul says, I, for one, am not ashamed of the gospel. And so, in my last four points that are up there, I want to share this by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, who's an awesome pastor, uh, this church in New York, um, awesome writer. If you haven't read any books by Tim Keller, if you're into reading, they're good. But he says four reasons some people are ashamed of the gospel. Four reasons some people are ashamed of the gospel. Number one, the gospel tells us that we're all spiritual failures tells us that we're all spiritual failures. Jesus didn't come for the ones who had potential. He came for those, the ones that had no spiritual potential at all. So Jesus just didn't come to save the ones that were pretty good kids and then that he'll save them. He came for the ones that had no spiritual potential at all. The hopeless failures, like you and me. <laughs> Some of you might be like, I wasn't a hopeless failure, I was a pretty good kid. You know what I mean? That's not the gospel. The gospel is he came for those that were utterly hopeless. Some people may think they have advantage over others and they have done well, and that's not true. So the gospel says we're all spiritual failures. Number two, the gospel tells us that we are all wicked. The gospel tells us that we're all wicked. And that rubs some people the wrong way. That rubs some people the wrong way. It doesn't sit right with some people, okay? The gospel doesn't just say that we've all made mistakes. It doesn't say that we could all do a bit better. It levels the playing field for all people by saying that apart from God, that we are utterly wicked. Utterly wicked. Every single one of us from birth. That's offensive to some people. So wicked, in fact, that only the death of God's only son, Jesus, can make us righteous. That God had to send his only son to die for us. That's how wicked we all were. That's offensive. This offends, as Keller says, the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. All people are good deep down. That's not true. The deeper you get down apart from Christ, the more wicked you'll find that we are. And it's sad, but it's true. Kids don't have to learn to be selfish, right? <laughs> Kids are born selfish. Kids don't have to learn to lie. They're born liars. It just happens at a young age. We're all wicked. And it kind of goes against the goodness defends the popular belief that we're all good or the belief that we just need to get in touch with our inner beauty. We just need to get in touch with our inner goodness, and that's good. Number three, 
The gospel tells us that many good people go to hell. Again, it's something to be ashamed about, maybe for some people. But why does the gospel say that? This might be new to some of us. The gospel tells us that many good people go to hell. The reigning religious view of our society, assumed more often than it is stated, is that good, sincere people will be okay in the end. If you're a good person and you try to do what's right, you're going to be okay in the end. When you die and stand before a righteous God, he'll give you the old pass into heaven. And that's offensive to be like, no, no. Many good people are going to die and spend eternity in hell. And just because that they were really good people and they stand before the judge, they're not going to get a, a pass. Maybe God grades on a curve. Maybe he's at the top of the mountain and our best efforts to get us there in different ways will be good enough. Meaning that all, all, so all ways go to heaven. If you follow your God, I'll follow mine. God will be okay with it in the end. However we conceptualize it, we tend to think that good intentions will be good enough for God. The gospel truth is as jarring as could be. Good moral people are not guaranteed into heaven for the simple reason that none of us deep down are actually good and moral people. It is nice to be nice, but Jesus didn't come to bring nice people to heaven. He came to save sinners from hell. He didn't come to just bring nice people to heaven. He came to save us sinners from hell. And so the last one, the gospel tells us that suffering is normal, not exceptional. You know, the gospel tells us salvation was accomplished by Jesus serving and suffering. And we are his followers. We should expect the same in following him. And Keller writes, this offends people who want salvation to be the easy life, nice and comfortable. Christianity is not a religion demanding that its followers seek suffering. But the way of Christ is the way of service. And Jesus himself promised that those who hated him would also hate his followers. So people who hate Jesus will eventually hate you. Again, that could cause some people to be ashamed of the gospel. Suffering is normal for Christians. It's not exceptional. So don't say, why, God? Say, thanks for the warning, God. <laughs> when suffering happens in our life, don't say, why, God? How could this possibly happen to me? Say, thank you, God, for the warning, and thank you for promising to never leave me and never forsake me. Amen? So when suffering comes, don't beat yourself up. Don't ask God why, because God said that suffering is going to come in different ways. So with all this in Romans, it tells us the scandalous truth that we are all helpless, helpless sinners destined to hell. That's where we are headed. But through faith in Jesus, we can all be justified or made right with God. Welcomed and being made right with God, we can be welcomed to the throne, into the Father's presence, onto the Father's lap, and we could talk in the Father's ear. Amen? No matter how wicked we think you are, nothing could separate us from the love of God. That's scandalous. That's grace. That's the gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you uh, for this truth that we are all helpless sinners. No matter how good we were when we were in school, no matter how bad we were when we were in school, we're all on the level playing field that we are separated from God, destined for hell. But the good news is that Jesus came, he died and rose again, and that through faith in him, we could experience righteousness. We could be called righteous 
children of God. And then we can live a righteous life. And as Romans said, sin no longer has its grip on us. We could be free, not to sin, but we could be free to live a righteous life. We could be free to walk in um, peace with you and not in the slavery of sin. Help us unpack this week in and week out. Help us find the truths in this and help us live through this um, as we walk in this, God. God, help us all understand the gospel and live from it every day of our lives. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.